This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Ask ST at NLB podcast series brought to you by the National Library Board. Now, during this COVID-19 pandemic, you can download the NLB mobile app to access your personal library anywhere, anytime. The Ask ST at NLB Monthly Talks by the Straits Times Correspondents were previously held at the Central Public Library. But for now, we are converting them into a podcast series done remotely. Listen to the correspondence you follow more intimately through our podcast. For this episode, the Straits Times Senior Food Correspondent Wong Ayo is with hotelier-restaurateur Lo Lik Ping of the Unlisted Collection. They will talk about the new normal in restaurant dining and how the COVID-19 pandemic has transformed the food and beverage landscape in Singapore. Hi, Liping. Welcome to the show. Hello, Ayo. Thank you for having me. Yes, we are here today to talk about the new normal in restaurant dining. Now that we are into phase two of the economy's reopening, we can dine in restaurants again. And I've been going out the last couple of weeks dining in restaurants and it's really been a hassle going through all the temperature checks, the check-in, check-outs. Yeah, quite a hassle. But eventually, I think we all get used to it and it will just become like part of the normal dining experience, I guess. What do you think, Ping? Yeah, actually, I agree with you. It's a bit strange for me to go everywhere and have to, uh, you know, do the temperature scan as well as uh, scan the QR codes. But I've kind of gotten used to it as a part of a normal sort of routine now. And everywhere I go, I whip out my phone first. And I guess it's part of uh, safety for everyone. So I think we all have to get used to it. Okay, Ping, yeah, that's you talking as a diner. But as a restauranter yourself, how are restaurants working within all these new rules? How are you going to make the experience for customers better? I think at the end of the day, what we are looking at is to try and make the experience as pleasant and as seamless as possible. So I think some of the steps we have taken to adapt to having this check-in thing is to have a system that's a little bit more discreet. So, for example, at Zen, you're going to get a piece of a nice little envelope that you can put your mask in and things like that. It has a QR code there. So in your own time, as you sit down, you click into the QR code so that it doesn't feel too intrusive. You know, you come in and you have to click a QR code straight away. So we're exploring different strategies like that. I, I, I think it's going to take us a while to find a solution that everyone is happy with. But we are experimenting as much as we can. We're trying to make the experience as easy and as seamless as we can. Yeah, that's great. Actually, I love this envelopes for masks or this mask holders or covers because like sometimes when I'm dining, especially in like a hawker center, I don't know where to put my mask. You don't want to put it on the table. And even in restaurants, sometimes the tables are so small. By the time they put all the cutlery and the dishes on the table, there's no space to put your mask. So I think these covers are really a good idea. But talking about social distancing, how are small restaurants going to make money? Because now the seats are like reduced to almost half. And I think you have some restaurants like that, those in like the Kyongsik area, the Club Street area. So what do you plan to do about that? Yeah, you know, I think that's one of the issues. We have so many restaurants with very tight seating, right? Counter seating. And in better times, they were like really cool restaurants because you wanted to get the atmosphere. You're jostling for space almost with people. But in the COVID times, it's difficult. So what we have done is we have obviously complied with the social distancing, which means restaurants like Eskina, Burn Ends, they have probably lost more than 50% of the capacity, in fact. But what we have tried to do is to stagger timings with customers. 
So we, we may have three slots. So instead of coming in, let's say everyone coming in at 7.30, which used to be the case, we try and say, can you come in at 6.30? Then the next slot, let's say 8.30. And then the next slot, let's say 9.30. And obviously for that period, we have much less capacity than we would normally. But if we stagger it like this, we can get probably close to what the previous capacity is. We may lose 25% of capacity overall. And then the other thing we try and do is, of course, we try and plan menus such that we have a set menu and there's little wastage. And also means that we can time that set menu so that we can fit in the slots that we need to. And in that way, we hopefully are able to then make up for a lot of the lost covers that we have. Yeah, we're all going to suffer uh, some very bad times. But at the same time, I think there are some positives about dining in again. For example, I mean, food tastes so much better when you're actually eating it fresh from the kitchen. Unlike during the last two months when I had to eat home delivery every day. We'll talk more about home delivery later on. But there are other positive aspects that I experience in restaurants these days too. I mean, a lot of restaurants are making better use of technology. It's more efficient. I like the minimal contact. I was in a restaurant over the weekend. And when I paid the bill, they just brought this portable device. and I just tapped my credit card on it. I mean, it saved so much time. So there are good things too. But uh, talking as a restauranter yourself, what do you think we should keep after the pandemic? So one of the things that I've found with the contactless payments, apart from the fact that it's safer, is the fact that it's also much more efficient. So we've seen a productivity leap, right? Because before that, you had to bring the credit card machine or bill there, then the guy gives you the credit card, then you bring it back. You know, the step might take uh, three or four minutes, whereas with contactless payments, it literally happens in 30 seconds. So I think we have seen some productivity leaps with these new technologies. The other thing that we will obviously also try and do in future is to diversify income streams. One of the things that COVID-19 has exposed for the industry as a whole is the fact that we are so reliant, 100% reliant on dine-in customers only. I think in future, a lot of restaurants will try and maintain some level of takeout, some level of different revenue streams going forward. Okay, Ping, if you were to open a restaurant now, what kind of restaurant will it be? So one of the things I think about this present situation, if you're looking at opening a restaurant now, is obviously social distancing, uh, obviously minimal contact. So if I were to open a restaurant now, I think I'll try and do something that was a little bit more like those ramen stalls you see in Japan, right, where you, you really don't see any humans. I think I would like to do a restaurant where you have a vending machine, you put in a code, or you can use your phone to scan a code. You know, you don't have to touch the button and the food comes out and it's prepared behind the scenes where you can be in almost like a lab environment, very, very clean and minimal contact. If you return a tray, you don't see a human again. Obviously, those type of dining is not going to be fine dining, but I think it will address a lot of the issues that people have now about cross transmission or, you know, and then you probably sit in a plastic booth where you don't see anyone else, I guess. But it only really works for convenience sort of restaurants. I'm not sure it would work for all types of restaurants, particularly the type of restaurants we would normally do. Now, if you like this Ask ST at NLB podcast, please subscribe to The Straits Times for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify. Give us a rating too. This series is brought to you by the National Library Board and you can download the NLB mobile app to access your personal library anywhere, anytime. And now, back to our episode with the Straits Times senior food correspondent, Wong Ayok, and hotelier restaurateur, Lo Likping. Likping, yeah, you were talking just now about the takeaway and delivery model, and how restaurants will now have to combine that with dining in as well. 
I want to say a bit about my experience doing delivery during the circuit breaker. I had it almost every day. And I must say that I am so glad I don't have to do it again because somehow eating at home, especially I stay alone, so I have to eat alone. It's not a very conducive experience and I really don't have very much appetite. But at the same time, there were some positives. I find that some food really works very well with deliveries. I think like soups, steamed food, stews, all those work very well. And how about you, Ping? I'm sure you order a lot of delivery as well. Actually, I did. I probably had deliveries at least once a day as well. <laughs> I think I'd try and cook one meal at home with the family and then I would deliver at least one meal. And you're right, the quality isn't quite there, no matter how we try. For majority of the food that we produce in our restaurants, which are, I guess, relatively high-end, I think during the delivery process, inevitably some food travels better than others. You're quite right. The soups, the steam stuff travels a little bit better. Anything deep fried or grilled tended to suffer. Burgers traveled very well and cheesecakes traveled very well. So I ordered quite a lot of hamburgers uh, and I had a lot of cheesecake. So what were the more popular items from your restaurants? The cheesecakes? I really do see a lot, especially the burnt cheesecakes. Yeah, I think a lot of it was a sort of comfort feeling. So we noticed that people like to have homely food. One thing that sold really well was Iberico pork ribs. You know, a lot of our restaurants are doing it. I think Burnt Ends was doing it. Meat Smith was doing ribs. Bass Kitchen was doing ribs. And I found that ribs were very, very popular. People like ordering ribs to go home. And I think ribs travel especially well. Hamburgers travel very, very well. Cheesecakes, burnt cheesecakes from Esquina and Bass Kitchen, both were off the charts, really popular. And I think that had to do with the fact that it was just a comfort food. People enjoyed eating it at home. You know, nobody wants a fancy meal during these times, I think. Yes, uh, talking about burnt ends, that's another positive thing. Because normal times, you can never get a seat at burnt ends. But with delivery and takeaway, you can order it anytime. So for me, that was something positive. <laughs> and uh, also uh, Mui Ki. I love the food at Mui Ki. I love the congee. But yes, I, yes. I hated the queue, so I did not go there very often. That was one of the first places I wanted to take away from. And talking about delivery, another aspect is that now with island-wide delivery, it opens up a whole new world of restaurants to me. You know, restaurants in far-flung places that I would not bother to go to and places with no parking facilities. It was so stressful dining there before. But now with delivery, I can just order and wait at home. So it works very well for me in that sense. But for restaurants, I see that island-wide delivery also opened up competition because now you have to compete with restaurants throughout Singapore, not just within your neighborhood. So uh, what do you think about that, Ping? My own view is it's a double-edged sword, right? The fact that people have more access to your restaurants and the fact that because the access is made easier, you have more restaurants on those platforms. It's a double-edged sword. You have a bigger audience. You also have to fight harder for that audience. And I think it's in such situations where you really have to kind of innovate and make your menu stand out. And you really have to, I think, stand on the qualities of your food more than anything else, right? So I think if you look at some of the restaurants, they've been really clever about the things they do, the menu engineering part. If you look at Odette, a three Mission star restaurant doing roast chicken for takeout, these are things that they never would have done before. But how does a restaurant like Odette compete with a restaurant that's selling a zi at one-tenth the price. They do that because 
they can talk about their quality, they can talk about different aspects that it might attract a different audience. And then you have restaurants like Meatsmith, which are doing these $10 hamburger takeouts, right? And the reality is these burgers have very little margin for the restaurants, but it kind of really puts the restaurant at a sort of forefront of people's minds. And then from there, they might order other things that have a slightly higher margin. So I think you really have to innovate and you really have to plan your menus and you really got to make yourself stand out. So it's a double-edged sword. I, I'm not afraid of the increased competition. I think it just means that you have to have a sharper offering and you have to give your customers a better reason to come to you. And overall, if everyone does this, then the customer really benefits. So I, I think this has an added benefit for customers. One thing that has bothered me about home deliveries is the packaging. <laughs> a lot of people, I think, are very bothered about this because we are all talking about sustainability and protecting the environment. And then we see all this packaging that we have to throw away. Some things, I, I suppose, can be helped. But I get a lot of disposable chopsticks and spoons and forks. And we are dining at home. We have all this at home. So I wish sometimes that restaurants would just not include this or they can just ask the diners whether they need it. What's your take on that? Yeah, you know, it pains me to see the amount of packaging too. And even within our own restaurant group, we were buying thousands and thousands of disposable containers. And we try and encourage customers when they do pick up to bring their own containers. I've been doing it myself. I have a set of Pyrex containers that I bring. And I find that actually improves the quality of the food too if you bring a, a nice, your own nice containers because it retains heat much better. But the reality of doing takeouts is that you will have disposable containers. And I think in the Singapore context, actually having things like plastic containers, which you see a lot of hawkers using, in some ways may be better than all the paper containers that we sometimes think are environmentally more friendly. Because in Singapore, we don't really have landfills, right? We incinerate our waste. Plastic containers are probably better suited to a country like Singapore where we incinerate our waste and paper products, which weigh a lot more and have to be imported. So, you know, if you look at the overall environmental cost, whether it's through transport and things like that, there's no perfect answer, but plastic containers may actually be more sustainable in a country like Singapore than those wooden ones or paper ones I see. Yes, I agree with you. And with plastic containers, sometimes actually I wash them and I reuse them because I deliver food to friends, sometimes food that I can't mm. finish. And I can use those containers again. But now I have this huge bag of disposable spoons, forks and chopsticks. So anybody who wants can come to me. So Ping, with this new normal, uh, how are restaurants going to sustain it? Because you now have to juggle both dine-in and takeaway delivery. You're going to need more manpower because you cannot have the same people handling both. And also now restaurants are like really like opening seven days a week, right? So one of the consequences of this lockdown is that restaurants pivoted to takeouts. And the thing about takeouts is you can't just say, oh, I'm going to operate a normal restaurant operating hours because, you know, you have to then adapt to what a customer is doing, right? He's having lunch, he's having dinner. He wants to order on a Sunday because he can't go out as well. He can't meet family. So one, one thing that I've noticed is that all the restaurants have switched to seven days a week lunch and dinner, you know, even the ones that used to open only at dinner or only had five day a week, you know, suddenly everyone is doing seven days a week. And you are doing that with the same pool of manpower. So it's it's really not sustainable, but it's a, it's a strategy that restaurants are employing now. First of all, to ensure that they are able to really um, ensure that they have a revenue stream that allows them to continue to employ their staff. And the reality is this is not sustainable because nobody can work seven days a week and do shifts, right? 
So I think sooner or later, we have to come back to a equilibrium where the staff are also able to rest well and still be able to serve their customers. But it's a very difficult equation. So, you know, at the moment, the things that restaurants are having to do to survive has really added to the burdens of the staff and really, really added to costs. So I think that's one of the things that we as an industry need to address going forward. How do we remain sustainable as a business for our staff as well as for our customers? But at the moment, it's not really sustainable. So looking forward, what are your plans? You are saying that you cannot go on like this, but then there need to be a solution. I think um, one of the things that we are going to have to look at is, for example, to maybe perhaps set up a central kitchen somewhere that concentrates on deliveries. And then the sit-in dining restaurants will continue with perhaps their reduced capacities, but starting to go back to a normal schedule where the restaurant is open at its normal operating hours. You can't expect the staff to work seven days a week forever. You know, During this period where their jobs and their livelihoods and the business depends on it, most of them have taken the view that they will sacrifice whatever is necessary to survive. But I think in the longer term, we can't sustain this. So we have to look at different models. And one of the models that we are looking at is perhaps setting up a central kitchen that we can do deliveries from. And we might have a separate team from that. And we have to look at the sustainability of that. That sounds like a good solution, actually. And we are all looking forward to getting back to normal times again. I mean, I would love to go to a restaurant and see it bustling, everybody enjoying themselves. Don't have to worry about falling sick. Hopefully that day will come soon. I hope so, too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that nicely wraps up this portion of the podcast. Thanks, Liping, for your insights. Thank you. And now we will move on to the questions sent in by our readers after they responded to our ads in the Straits Times and at the National Library. We have a question from an ST reader, Madam Tang Wen Yu. The question is, post-COVID-19 and the looming recession, is there bigger room for fine dining? How do you cater to the few with lots of money to spend on food without coming across as insensitive? I think, yeah, that question is on a lot of people's minds because, well, times are bad and we've been told that the recession that's coming will be really bad. And at the same time, there are fine dining restaurants still open and people are still going. So as a journalist, we actually do write about these fine dining restaurants, but we do not focus as much on them because it is sensitive to be writing about all this uh, fancy food, caviar, foie gras, when people are worried about losing their jobs. So we try to do a balance. We try to promote more affordable food. But once in a while, I think we do write about something a bit more fancy and deluxe because people do need some cheer once in a while. And even though you can't eat in these restaurants as often as you used to, it is good to maybe once in a while give yourself a treat so, Ping, uh, you own fine dining restaurants yourself. So how do you deal with this issue of coming across as being insensitive during bad times? So this is a really difficult one. You know, the reality is that there are many, many different sort of positionings for restaurants. Some restaurants are mid-market, some are at the lower end, and some are at the very top end, right? You have your two or three Michelin star restaurants where the average check is anything from 300 to $500 a head. It's very hard to justify these sort of restaurants when people are losing their jobs or struggling to survive. And one thing we have to realize is that, first of all, these restaurants at the very top end, there's only a handful, you know, there's less than 10 in the whole of Singapore. And these restaurants 
cater to a very particular market that in normal times, if you speak to Julian at Odette or if you look at Les Amis, during normal times, they probably have about 30 to 50% of their market are overseas people who come here. They're foodies, right? And they come to Singapore to have a very good time. And then you have your special occasion people who come there for birthdays, wedding anniversaries, and they're splurging for that particular time. Do people go to three Michelin-star restaurants on a weekly basis? Very, very few. So we have to recognize that these are particular restaurants with a very particular niche and people go to them for very particular reasons. People have special occasions, then they go to these restaurants. Very seldom do people go to these restaurants like twice a week or something, right? Unlike other restaurants. So they serve a very, very, very niche part of the market. And I think they also have their own staff to look after their own things. So we have to recognize that these restaurants exist to serve a very particular segment of the dining market and they are not the wider part of the market. So within that context, they exist for a reason. And I think, you know, we have to recognize that they continue to serve that part of the market. And it's not something that people should look on as the rich flaunting their wealth while everyone is starving. And I think that's true of every market in the world. They have these particular high-end restaurants that serve a very, very niche part of the market. Yeah, that's very true. Let's move on to another uh, question from reader, Mr. Victor Lim. His question is, in your opinion, did Phase 2 come too soon before F&B players are ready? Have the authorities done well by F&B operators? I'll answer the first question, whether Phase 2 came too soon. For me, there's no perfect timing, right? The cases uh, within the community were pretty low, so it's really as good a time to reopen as any because if you wait another week, you wait another month, the situation probably would not have changed. I think it was okay. Yeah, I don't think there's any like perfect timing whether it was too soon, too late. And also, I think restaurants need the business, so as well come sooner than later. What about your views, Spring? I agree with you. At the end of the day, all the restaurants were chomping at the bit to open. And I think once phase two was announced, the majority of restaurants were quickly able to spool up their preparations right to open. So I think if you look at them, getting SG clean, getting safe distancing, putting the QR codes, majority of restaurants are ready to implement all the safety measures that the government required fairly quickly. Some were a bit slower than others because they had to supply, get supplies in, things like that. So from a point of view of safety of the industry, I think the industry was well aware of its obligations and the majority of them were ready to meet those obligations quite early. So I think in terms of the timing for phase two, it was fine for the industry. In terms of looking at whether the customers are ready, it looks like majority of them were too because we saw a very fast uptake for the few spots that we had, frankly. But uh, a lot of restaurants were full for the next two, three weeks right after phase two was announced. Yeah, that's right. In fact, the first weekend yeah, when I went to the malls, they were really crowded. Although by the second weekend, it slowed down a little bit, which is also good. So I think, yeah, like you say, the diners are ready to go out again. How about the second question, Ping? Have the authorities done well by F&B operators? My view is that the authorities have done very well by the F&B operators. Look, I think at the beginning of the crisis, we were all scrambling around trying to figure out how we were going to survive, you know, given the, the fact that the payroll and the rents were still there and really the revenue had caved in. So we looked at 
what the government measures are, if we look at it objectively, they have done very well by the FMB industry. You know, we had the job support scheme, which certainly I would say helped the majority of restaurants retain the majority of their staff. It wasn't without some sacrifices. I think some people had to be let go in some restaurants. We saw still a lot of restaurants closing. But I think the majority of the sustainable restaurants survived. And obviously the rent relief that the government mandated also meant that landlords were somewhat more accommodating towards their tenants, I would say, simply because, first of all, there was the legislation, but also the serious tone of the conversations that the government had with the industry meant that landlords were much more aware of how crucial it was in this period that as many people survived as possible. The next question is from reader Teresa Chen. Her question is very long, so I'm going to paraphrase it. Basically, uh, her concern is that now only a group of five from different households are allowed to dine together. What about families with more than five? Yeah, so her concern is that by limiting diners to a group of five, families like that cannot have meals together outside. And she wants to know the rationale for that because they live in the same house anyway. My take on that is that, first of all, it's very difficult to set a set of rules for one group of people and a different set of rules for another group. So, yeah, you can't say, that, oh, just because you live in one household, you can have a table of 10. And then another group comes in and you say, oh, you can't because you don't live in the same household. Teresa's rationale is that restaurants can always check their identification papers to prove that they all live together. But then it requires a lot of work on the part of the restaurant. And I don't know how many families would be able to prove that they actually live in the same household. So in terms of logistics and in terms of being fair to everybody, I think this rule, at least for the time being, should maybe just stand and bigger groups maybe can go out separately or they can like have a meal at home. That's the only solution I can think of. But at the same time, when I was dining out, I have seen big groups come in to the restaurant and they just sit in two separate tables or five. But during dinner, you see a lot of interaction, people passing food around. So that I don't agree with because, I mean, you are just observing the letter of the rule, but you're not following the spirit because you are not supposed to interact if you are not from the same household. So I hope diners will be able to observe the rules and make it safe for everybody. And the last question we have comes from Miss Bao Xuan. Her question is, what is the most underrated local produce used in restaurants today? What do you project for the farm-to-fork movement in our Singapore restaurant scene? Ping, would you like to answer that? Yeah, sure. So one of the things that I think the restaurant industry in the last two or three years has really been amazed by is the local vegetables being produced now. And a lot of these local farms, right, they're hydroponic farms, and I've been to a few. And they've been able to produce fairly exotic, um, not just things like lettuce, which we were seeing for the last 10 years, but very exotic types of vegetables. Like I saw someone producing um, this wasabi plants and I was amazed because I was like, wow, you can produce wasabi in Singapore. And obviously it's a very expensive process at the moment. But, you know, these things are only expensive when you try and produce 10. If you try and produce 100,000 of them, the price will drop. 
if you look at the kind of technologies being adopted now, you're going to see more and more of these very exotic vegetables. And I am amazed by what they can produce from very small footprint. The quality is improving very, very rapidly. So I think one of the things that we will start seeing, certainly in the local restaurant trade, is very high quality local vegetables, non-tropical vegetables. I'm not talking about growing chai sim, you know, I'm talking about growing things like high value, things like probably asparagus you can probably grow in Singapore. So a lot of these things are coming and you are seeing very innovative farmers in Singapore doing this. Things I wouldn't have imagined even two, three years ago, I'm seeing now. And I think restaurants are prepared to pay for it, a higher price than they might pay for asparagus coming in from Germany, simply because I think customers are demanding it now. And the quality is also there. If you are looking at poor quality produce from local farms, I think the adoption will be harder. But what is striking is that this vegetables being produced are very, very high quality. Well, that's really interesting. Actually, I'm looking forward to locally grown wasabi because it's such a short shelf life vegetable. It's almost yeah, impossible yeah. for us to get. So yeah, it would be wonderful if we can get that. And uh, yeah, thank you so much, Ping, uh, for coming on the podcast with us. And thank you, Ayok, for having me uh, during these very difficult times. We can't be face-to-face, but thank you for having me on your podcast. Well, that's a wrap, and we'd like to thank our readers for sending in their questions. This series is brought to you by the National Library Board. And don't forget that during this COVID-19 pandemic, you can download the NLB mobile app to access your personal library anywhere, anytime. Follow The Straits Times on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcast apps to catch the next episode of Ask ST at NLB. That was an SPH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast at sph.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.